Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind that is the mind of Christ. And to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians read through the Book of Concord and discuss what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we are going to look at Luther's A Brief Exhortation to Confession, which is included in the appendix of the Reader's Edition of the Book of Concord. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And before I introduce my guest for today, I first want to say a word of thank you to the Ladies' Aid of Emmanuel West Point here in Illinois, which I am always pleased to serve as pastor. But a special thank you to them as they were very generous to give a donation to help support me doing this show, which allowed for some technical equipment upgrades, which have been very helpful in making this show happen, especially amidst the challenges of the last few months. Now, over the last few months, I have only very briefly made references to some of the effects which the whole COVID situation has had on this show. And this has been mostly intentional because at KFO, we just want to bring you Christ-centered confessional content. That is what we need and that is changeless in the midst of this ever-changing world. So that is what we want to focus on with every show and not get too caught up with other matters. And so hopefully you've been enjoying the Christ-confessing content so much that you've not really noticed some of the changes in the production of this show. But of course, we do want the content supported with good production quality, and there is the practical side of making the show happen every week. So I think it might be a good time to take just a few minutes here to share a little bit about what has been going on over the last several months for us, and thereby thank those who continue to make this show possible, especially at this time. So since the whole COVID situation, most of the folks that do shows on KFO have been working remotely from home. Now, some of them, like my good friend Pastor Apple with Sharper Iron in the Mornings, he's always worked remotely since our studios are in St. Louis and he is in Texas. But for me here in Southern Illinois, prior to the COVID situation, I had done most of my shows live from the studios of KFO in St. Louis, which also meant that I had all of those great professional quality studios and equipment to work with to make the show. However, once the initial stay-at-home orders came in and the LCMS International Center asked people to work remotely, I had to start doing my show from my office in rural southern Illinois, which, as you might imagine, presented quite a few technical challenges, namely slow internet speeds, and so I was even afraid that I may not be able to continue with the show. However, I am very, very thankful that right away KFUO was gracious enough to want me to continue, and so they were able to get me some equipment in order to still connect to guests, pre-record shows, and thus continue doing the show. And the equipment has been great, and we've been able to continue to produce new content every week over the last five plus months, and hopefully you would say that that has also been good production quality as well. However, as it always seems to happen, that equipment, which has been such a blessing to continue the show, also ended up causing some conflicts with other computer equipment I had, which caused me several headaches in getting shows produced, and thus caused the need to upgrade some other technical equipment in order to get everything to work together better and not create problems in the quality affecting the show. For which I again just want to say a big thank you to the wonderful ladies of Emmanuel West Point's Ladies Aid, which made some of those very helpful upgrades possible. 
So after taking the week off last week and running a rebroadcast of an older episode in order to get the new equipment up and running, it is great to be back with you this week as we continue to bring you what we hope you find to be quality Christ-centered confessional content that is also quality in production as well. And for that, I definitely wanted to take a few minutes to thank the Emmanuel Ladies Aid, also thank KFUO for getting me the equipment, and really I should also thank you, the listeners and those who support the work of KFUO with your gifts. For without your support, KFUO would not have been able to get me the equipment. And please know that I am always so humbled and grateful that there are those who want to listen to this show and grow in their knowledge and understanding of our Lutheran confessions, and your support makes that possible. So thank you for allowing me to keep doing something I love to do, something that is important for the church, and hopefully that you appreciate as well, which is teach our Lutheran confession of the faith. Thank you. And so to that end, I want to bring in my companion confessor in conversation about this confessional document today, and he is Pastor Mark Bars, the pastor of Crown of Life Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas. He is also a Doxology Collegium Fellow and the author of several papers for Doxology's Zalesorger Journal, and especially notable for the purposes of our episode today, he authored the paper Individual Confession and Absolution, The Care of Souls Up Close, which was in Zalesorger Journal, Volume 5, published in 2019. Pastor Bars, welcome to Concord Matters. Thank you so much, Pastor Smith. Great to be with you. I look forward to our conversation and our study together. Absolutely, and it is certainly an honor to have you on Concord Matters, especially as I shared that paper you wrote for Zalesorger was something I really appreciated. And as I shared with you when I invited you to be a guest, I thought it had that gospel-focused, pastoral care of souls tone that I believe is the real focus and tone of this document that we're going to be covering today, which of course is Martin Luther's A Brief Exhortation to Confession. And so the first thing we want to cover here with this document is where you will find this document in the Book of Concord. Now, of course, on this show, we use Concordia, the reader's edition of the Book of Concord, available to you from Concordia Publishing House, the publishing arm of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. And in this reader's edition of the Book of Concord, you will find Luther's A Brief Exhortation to Confession in Appendix B. That's on page 649 in the second edition. And now starting with today's episode and over the next couple episodes, we're going to be covering documents from the appendices of the reader's edition of the Book of Concord. Today, looking at Luther's A Brief Exhortation to Confession, and then we'll go to the Catalog of Testimonies and then the Saxon Visitation Articles. And I don't really want to get too deep in with this at this point, especially because we've got a lot to cover here today. But I do need to point out that each of these three documents are not officially a part of the Book of Concord. That is, they are not part of what we subscribe to when we subscribe to the Lutheran Confessions. However, as we'll see with each of these three documents, they have traditionally been contained in various editions of the Book of Concord or alongside other documents that are a part of the Book of Concord. And so since these documents have often been included alongside the Lutheran Confessions, they definitely have significance for us as confessional Lutherans, and as I think you'll find, also prove to be faithful and true expositions of the teachings of Scripture, and thus are also worthy of our attention, time, and study for how the faith is actually being preached, taught, and put into practice among us as Lutherans, and thus also, I think, worthy of at least a few episodes looking at these documents on this show. And so when it comes to this document, A Brief Exhortation to Confession, I do think that you'll find this truly a gospel-focused for the comfort of consciences document, which of course is what all scripturally faithful teaching seeks to serve, especially those documents that are part of the Book of Concord. 
But this document is, as I said, not itself a part of the Lutheran Confessions, which I think a section of the editor's notes in the reader's edition of the Book of Concord that we use explains really simply and yet well for us why it's not included in the Book of Concord. So this is from the editor's note. The exhortation first appeared in the 1529 revised edition of the Large Catechism. However, it did not appear in the original 1580 German and 1584 Latin editions of the Book of Concord. Therefore, it was not included by Dow and Benti in the Concordia Triglata. We have included it here since readers are used to having it from other editions of the Book of Concord. Thus far, the editors don't. Now, for some brief context for you, if you're not familiar with some of these things, remember that the large catechism was published in April 1529. However, this note is pointing us to the fact that the exhortation to confession did not appear with the original edition of Luther's large catechism, but it was with the revised edition later. And then on June 25th, 1580, when Jacob Andre and Martin Chemnitz, among others, published the Book of Concord with the formula of Concord and in celebration of the 50th anniversary of the presentation of the Augsburg Confession, they did not include the exhortation to confession with it, the 1580 edition of the Book of Concord. Thus, likewise, the Concordia Triglata reference there in the editor's note, which was prepared by professors Friedrich Bente and W.H.T. or William Herman Theodore Dow, and was based on the original German 1580 and Latin 1584 texts, and was published in 1917 as a memorial for the quadricentennial of the Reformation. That was the significant English translation of the Book of Concord for quite a long time. So you've got the German 1580, which is kind of the standard Book of Concord and the basis of our confessional subscription. But then you got the Concordia Triglata, that is basically our English version that has been the standard for a long time. So definitely some pretty significant editions of the Book of Concord did not include this document. However, it was a part of the early revised edition of the Large Catechism, which, of course, is included in the Book of Concord, and, as noted, was also a part of other German and English editions of the Book of Concord as well. So definitely readers are used to having this document with the Book of Concord. And so I think CPH did really well in including this wonderful document here in the appendix of the reader's edition of the Book of Concord for us. And again, I am glad to cover it on this show in connection with the Book of Concord, going through the Book of Concord, even though I just want to highlight again, not officially a part of our confessional subscription. So with that background then, I think we should go ahead and get into this document. And from here on out, other than reading from the document, I'll do a lot less talking and let a most excellent confessor, Pastor Bars, guide us in receiving beneficial instruction for Christian life from this wonderful document, Luther's A Brief Exhortation to Confession. So let's go ahead and dig into it here. We got a lot to cover today. So let's go ahead and start with paragraphs one through four. I'll go ahead and read that and then turn it over to Pastor Bars here in a second. Here now follows an exhortation to confession. We have always urged that confession should be voluntary and that the Pope's tyranny should cease. As a result, we are now rid of his coercion and set free from the intolerable load and burden that he laid upon Christendom. As we all know from experience, there had been no rule so burdensome as the one that forced everyone to go to confession on pain of committing the most serious of mortal errors. The law also placed on consciences the heavy burden and torture of having to list all kinds of sin so that no one was ever able to confess perfectly enough. The worst was that no one taught or even knew what confession might be or what help and comfort it could give. 
Instead, it was turned into sheer terror and a hellish torture that one had to go through even if one detested confession more than anything. These three oppressive things have now been lifted, and we have been granted the right to go to confession freely, under no pressure of coercion or fear. Also, we are released from the torture of needing to list all sins in detail. Besides this, we have the advantage of knowing how to make a beneficial use of confession for the comfort and strengthening of our consciences. All right, Pastor Bars, Luther seems concerned here at the outset about what happens to confession when it's made compulsory, as it was under the Pope prior to the Reformation. And so what is Luther's concern then when confession is mandatory? Well, I'm going to begin by saying this is one of those writings of Luther where, though he was never officially a pastor in Wittenberg, he writes as a pastor. He writes to those who need to have greater understanding and also need exhortation, encouragement, invitation to receive such a wonderful gift. Now, as you pointed out, this is not strictly one of the confessional documents, and yet confession and absolution both are treated significantly well in other places in our confessions. The Augsburg Confession does so very early on. The small call articles do so. And just previous to this in the large catechism, I think that he speaks and anticipates his writing and encouragement here by talking about worthiness and unworthiness. He writes in that large catechism section, we are not baptized because we are worthy and holy, nor do we go to confession because we are pure and without sin. On the contrary, we go because we are poor, miserable people. We go exactly because we are unworthy. And then only some paragraphs later, as the document is and the large catechism ends there, he includes this and adds this exhortation. So he writes He does write pastorally, even though, I will say this, I think some of my language would probably be a little more gentle than his. But then again, that's Luther. The second comment I would make is that many of our hearers, I suspect, might even be saying that, well, of course you confess your sins. We do that every Sunday morning, and we do. We do that in the divine service. And there are different forms that we might use from different orders, yes, but we are used to making confession of our sins. So there might be some who are listening to us today who would say, well, I'm not even sure what the big deal is. Well, the issue in the Reformation is that they didn't know because they didn't use a form such as we might call our general confession that we speak on a Sunday morning with clear gospel-focused absolution. I, as a called and ordained servant of Christ and by his authority, forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. One of the comments that I included in that paper that you referenced that I wrote for Doxology and was in the Zalesorger Journal is remembering my pastor when I was young at a chapel service in our parochial school in Nebraska. Excuse me, that would have been in Michigan, I think. I'm pretty sure it was in Michigan after we had moved to Michigan. And he said, there is one time I don't want to see people yawning in worship. It's not during the sermon. It's not during the reading of the gospel. It's when I speak the absolution. Luther wants his hearers then, and significantly later for us, we still need to hear this gift, this blessing, this blessing of confession. Now, what is he saying about the tyranny 
that they are under because of the papacy, because of the Roman church. And he lists it in three ways. He says, first, that people are forced to go to confession. It would be considered one of the greatest of mortal sins. That's number one. Second, that they would have to list all kinds of sin. Really, their confession would not be valid unless they listed every sin. And third, and this is how he phrases it, the worst was that no one ever taught or even knew what confession might be or what help and comfort it could give. Essentially, gospel has been turned into law. That's why he wants people to appreciate, receive, participate in confession, because it is the riches of the gospel being given, spoken, received, and rejoiced upon. It was then, and it is now, Pastor Smith, the same. Absolutely. And I completely agree with you that this is very pastoral and I think plays even into the next paragraphs here where some people, as you even said, maybe he speaks a little more forcibly than we would today. Although I don't know, I look at St. Paul sometimes and the prophets and I think, have we completely lost the pastoral rebuke or the confidence to speak sternly from the word of God, of course, only Mm -hmm. and not our personal opinions. But I think sometimes these next paragraphs are taken as Luther being very harsh with his people. And sometimes people might think he's not being very pastoral here. But I would say that is more a modern reading of these things. I think he's still being very pastoral, even as he then takes us to the other extreme. So let me go ahead and read them paragraphs five through seven, and then we'll have you take us through this as well. So picking up with paragraph five. Everyone is now aware of this, but unfortunately, people have learned it only too well. They do as they please and apply their freedom wrongfully, as if it meant that they ought not or must not go to confession. For we readily understand whatever is to our advantage, and we find it especially easy to take in whatever is mild and gentle in the gospel. But as I have said, such pigs should not be allowed near the gospel, nor have any part of it. They should stay under the Pope and let themselves continue to be driven and pestered to confess, to fast, and so on. For whoever does not want to believe the gospel, live according to it, and do what a Christian ought to be doing, should not enjoy any of its benefits either. Imagine their wanting to enjoy only the benefits without accepting any of the responsibilities or investing anything of themselves. What sort of thing is that? We do not want to make preaching available for that sort, nor to grant permission that our freedom and its enjoyment be opened up to them. Instead, we will let the Pope and the likes of him take over and force them to his will, genuine tyrant that he is. The rabble that will not obey the gospel, citing 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 8, deserves nothing else than the kind of jailer who is God's devil and hangman. But to others who gladly hear the gospel, we must keep on preaching, admonishing, encouraging, and coaxing them not to forget the precious and comforting treasure offered in the gospel. Therefore, we here intend to say also a few words about confession in order to instruct and admonish the uninformed. All right. Following the concern when confession is compulsory, then Luther now also states a concern to the other extreme. And Pastor Bars, what are some of the abuses that he says occur when confession is voluntary then? Well, I'm going to frame this with a couple of biblical references. First of all, Pastor Smith, one is a section of Hebrews chapter 10 that quite honestly perplexes me, perhaps even disturbs me, where the writer to the Hebrews says early on, now maybe a little bit later than some of the other letters of the New Testament church, but that some are in the habit of not meeting together. 
they're given this great privilege. When you look at what happens after Pentecost and Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they continued in the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of the bread and the prayers, and yet not too many years later, some are not gathering together. They're not gathering to encourage one another, as the writer to the Hebrew says, as you see the day approaching. Paul, in Romans chapter 6, when he begins that chapter by saying, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. And he leads into this rich, rich conversation about baptism and being buried and being crucified and buried and raised with Christ in baptism. But how easy it is for the follower of Christ, then and now, in 1529 and in 2020, to take for granted the blessings and the treasures that we are given. It is wonderful to say, well, you're no longer under the Pope's tyranny. You are free in Christ. You are free in the gospel. But then our freedom allows us, sadly, because of our fallen nature, to not even use the great gifts that our Lord gives to his church. But to others, this is how we close those paragraphs, Luther writes, to others who gladly hear the gospel, we must keep on preaching, admonishing, encouraging, and causing them not to forget the precious and comforting treasure offered in the gospel. I'll suggest one more scripture that seems to fit there. It's maybe hidden in that language when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So, The abuse is that we neglect such a great gift, and I think in our context, as I mentioned in some of my first comments, many of our people would say, but I do make confession every Sunday. I'm in the divine service. I speak those words, and I hear absolution being spoken to me. Isn't that enough? Now, they didn't know that in Luther's time. The composition of their worship service coming out of the Mass was different than that. But we could deal with, and I think pastorally have to deal with that, less than wonderful understanding of the treasure of individual confession and absolution as a blessing from God to hear the gospel and hear it spoken simply to me, as I need it as a pastor and as God's people need it particularly when there are times of brokenness, when there is pain in that journey of discipleship, and to kneel and to hear holy absolution spoken directly to you. This is for you. I really do think that is the emphasis, and I think you've hit that really well, that when we understand the treasure of the gospel that this gift of confession is, that's going to help us understand, as it helped them understand, and as Luther very pastorally is exhorting them to understand, what we're going to see coming up here, which is that there's a couple of kinds of confession, and then what I'll even call a couple of types of confession, and they're all the one and same gift, that treasure of the gospel. And so I think that you have laid really well for us, and and Luther certainly has this logical progression here of laying that foundation that this is centered on the gospel, and that's why I'm exhorting you as I am pastorally because that's going to lead us to a better and fuller understanding of confession. And so we're going to take a break a little bit early here because we got a lot to cover, but this is a nice natural breaking place here. And then we'll pick up the two kinds on the other side of the break of confession, which again flows forth from this logical progression. So please join us right after this. You're listening to Concord Matters on KFUO. Hi, this is Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas, host of Sharper Iron here on KFUO. Thanks for being a regular podcast listener of the program. We're starting a new series on Sharper Iron that will take us through the book of Proverbs. It's titled Wisdom 
and instruction. The book of Proverbs is probably best known for, well, it's Proverbs. We hear that title and immediately our minds jump to those short, pithy sayings with practical advice for life. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Leave the presence of a fool, for there you do not meet words of knowledge. Those are just three examples, and this book is filled with these short sayings that contain much wisdom. We Christians do well to write verses like these upon our hearts. But if all we ever do with the book of Proverbs is lift these one or two liners out of their context to put them in picture frames around our homes, we're missing so much. What we end up missing is true wisdom. Wisdom, as the book of Proverbs will give it to us, is so much deeper than practical advice about how to live. True wisdom is the fear of the Lord. True wisdom is the trust that his way alone gives life and that all other ways bring death. True wisdom is the expectation that all good gifts in this life and in the resurrection come from the Lord in his word. True wisdom is Jesus Christ, who is the wisdom of God made flesh for our salvation. Join us on Sharper Iron for this two-month journey through the book of Proverbs and find true wisdom in Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. And welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue talking with Pastor Mark Bars and working our way through Luther's A Brief Exhortation to Confession. We've got a lot to cover here, and so we're just going to dive right back into it. Right before the break, Pastor Bars was wonderfully showing and highlighting for us that great progression, laying the foundation. This gift of confession is a treasure of the gospel, and that's going to be a real great foundation for us as we continue with this exhortation to make use of this wonderful gift of the gospel. And so we're going to pick up reading with paragraph eight in this document. Again, not officially a part of the Book of Concord, not part of our confessional subscription, but is included in the appendix. We're reading from Concordia, the reader's edition of Book of Concord, paragraph 8. In the first place, I have said that besides the confession here being considered, there are two other kinds, which may even more properly be called the Christian's common confession. They are A, the confession and plea for forgiveness made to God alone, and B, the confession that is made to the neighbor alone. These two kinds of confession are included in the Lord's Prayer, in which we pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Of course, that comes from Matthew 6, verse 12, and so on. In fact, the entire Lord's Prayer is nothing else than such a confession. For what are our petitions other than a confession that we neither have nor do what we ought, as well as a plea for grace and a cheerful conscience? Confession of this sort should and must continue without let-up as long as we live, for the Christian way essentially consists in acknowledging ourselves to be sinners and in praying for grace. Similarly, the other of the two confessions, the one that every Christian makes to his neighbor, is also included in the Lord's Prayer. For here we mutually confess our guilt and our desire for forgiveness to one another, citing James 5 verse 16 before coming before God and begging for his forgiveness, citing Matthew 5, verses 23 through 24. Now, 
All of us are guilty of sinning against one another. Therefore, we may and should publicly confess this before everyone without shrinking in one another's presence. For what the proverb says is true. If anyone is perfect, then all are. There is no one at all who fulfills his obligations toward God and his neighbor, citing Romans 3, verses 10 through 12. Besides such universal guilt, there is also the particular guilt of the person who has provoked another to rightful anger and needs to ask his pardon. So we have in the Lord's Prayer a double absolution. There we are forgiven both our offenses against God and those against our neighbor. And there we forgive our neighbor and become reconciled to him. All right, thus far Luther's brief exhortation to confession. All right, so Pastor Bars, this flows directly from the end of paragraph 7. Once again, as I highlight on the show a lot, very much a logical progression in these documents of our Lutheran confessions. And Luther is working through this in a logical way. And so as he flows forth from paragraph 7 there, where Luther is identified confession as a treasure of the gospel, therefore, that he may teach us how to use confession evangelically for the comfort of terrified consciences, he says that he thus intends to say a few words about confession, which he begins by talking about two kinds of confession. So how do these two kinds of confession then lead the Christian in the way of the gospel? It's not surprising that Luther would take them, his hearers, his readers at the time, to something they knew so well, something that he would have wanted them to teach and speak and pray, the Lord's Prayer. And finding in the Lord's Prayer this confession that we speak when we ask that our sins would be forgiven even as we forgive and forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So our confession to God, our confession to God alone, it could be many of the Psalms, I think particularly of David's Psalm of Confession, Psalm 51, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. For any Christian to know and be honest before God, uh, words that we do speak on Sunday morning, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, First John 1 verse 10. But if we do not confess to God, we make him out to be a liar who says that we have sinned. So our first confession is to God. And this happens constantly. It is part of our life as the phrase. It is the way of the Christian to make this confession and to our brothers and sisters in Christ to ask for resolution. There are so many scriptures, particularly in the pastoral epistles, that speak to that of asking one another for forgiveness. If one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3. So turning to our brother or our sister in Christ. This is a little bit of an aside, but it is a wonderful teaching point that the greeting of peace in the divine service, it's not required. It's not something that must happen, but that when we turn to each other and we take what has been spoken to us vertically, the peace of God in Christ, and we turn it to our brother or our sister in Christ. And you know, sometimes who is right next to me, well, you and I perhaps sit alone very often in the sanctuary, but I'm thinking I should be turning to Connie, to my wife right now, and it should be a sign of confession and forgiveness between us, and reconciliation, which is God's blessing to us. So these two kinds of confession, yes to God, always to God, and to our brother and sister in Christ, so that I can hear from him or from her, I forgive you, you are forgiven for the sake of Christ. What a blessing, what a gift. 
Absolutely. And I definitely agree with you that as he draws out this scriptural teaching of what confession is, I completely agree. I love what he does and how he takes us back to something that every Christian would know. Luther does this all the time. That's why he writes the small catechism. He takes us back to the catechism, the basics of the Christian faith, what every Christian should know. And that's why the Lord's Prayer is included in the catechism. It's a great prayer for us to pray as Christians. And we're going to know about confession as it is just from praying that prayer. And so I completely agree. And I think he also does this continuing on then through the rest of this document, he continues to highlight things that he has also taught in a very simple way in the catechism. And so I'm going to go ahead and pick up with paragraphs 13 through 14 here. And I think subtly, again, there's at least a catechism reference here. And then definitely again later too, but this is picking up with paragraph 13. Besides this public daily and necessary confession, there is also the confidential confession that is only made before a single brother. If something particular weighs upon us or troubles us, something with which we keep torturing ourselves and can find no rest, and we do not find our faith to be strong enough to cope with it, then this private form of confession gives us the opportunity of laying the matter before some brother. We may receive counsel, comfort, and strength when and however often we wish. That we should do this is not included in any divine command, as are the other two kinds of confession. Rather, it is offered to everyone who may need it as an opportunity to be used by him as his need requires. The origin and establishment of private confession lies in the fact that Christ himself placed his absolution into the hands of his Christian people with the command that they should absolve one another of their sins, citing Ephesians 4 verse 32. So any heart that feels its sinfulness and desires consolation has here a sure refuge when he hears God's word and makes the discovery that God, through a human being, looses and absolves him from his sins. Thus far, Luther's a brief exhortation to confession. All right, so this, once again, definitely at least a connection to what he has taught in a very simple way under what we call the Office of the Keys and the Small Catechism. And in this document, it follows the two kinds of confession. And Luther here identifies, he doesn't specifically say this here, but what I will call two types of confession. And so what are the two types of confession here, if you agree with that language, at least, Pastor Bars? And how do they relate, again, to the gospel-focused Christian way of life? Well, the two types are the confession that I might speak on my own. Remember, Luther doesn't know a general confession in the divine services. People don't know that. But the confession that I speak before God, and then it's partner. I turn to my neighbor, I turn to my brother or my sister, and I make confession to him or to her so that I can, and now I'm quoting from the Augsburg Confession, even though this is the formal language of confession, that we should highly prize the absolution as being God's voice. And a little bit later on, as a voice sounding from heaven. What a rich expression to hear that. But the second type is that when there is such a burden, he uses the language of being tortured and finding no rest. I do not find my own resources within me to be able to cope with this. Then I go to my brother. I go to a pastor. I go to one who will hear my confession. This is not included, Luther says, in any divine command, but it is offered to everyone 
who may need it and how much we do need it, that absolution would be received as a gift from another, that God through a human being loses and absolves him from his sins. The language of the form of confession that I have most commonly used because of my age and because of my familiarity with Lutheran worship before the Lutheran service book is a a somewhat different form. It's longer than the one in the Lutheran service book, but I really love how it ends. I love to speak it. I love to hear it. When it ends by saying, go, you are free. When I was uh, privileged to be in Wittenberg, of all places, four years ago as the chaplain for the Eurasia Missionaries Conference, I gave opportunity for individual confession and absolution to missionaries and their families who were there. And there were those opportunities daily. And it wasn't that everybody was lining up at the door, but there were a number of times when I heard confessions and spoke absolution. I overheard one of the family members speaking to others and saying, I went to Pastor Bars for confession. And he said to me, go, you are free. I always love those words, but to hear what that meant to someone who needed to hear and receive and rejoice in the gospel. So how do they relate to the Christian way of life? Is that we need to hear over and over again and must never think that we are done hearing, that we cannot just talk about forgiveness, but forgiveness to be delivered, forgiveness to be received and rejoiced in. Absolutely. And as you said, you were over there for missionaries. So those who are going out and proclaiming and teaching the gospel and working in the mission field, which of course we as pastors do as well, although sometimes we don't always think of our congregations here as mission fields, but they are, they're gospel outposts. And how important does this highlight it that those who do the work also need it themselves? I often tell my people, you know, I go to a pastor too. I go for individual confession and absolution because I have sins that trouble me and that I need forgiveness for. I need to hear from God's voice through a pastor to me that those sins are forgiven, especially the ones that really bother me. And I, I think, again, that highlights what he teaches us in a very simple way from the small catechism. He asks that simple question under confession as we learn in the catechism, what sins should we confess? And he says very simply, before God, we should plead guilty of all sins, even those we're not aware of, as we do in the Lord's Prayer. But before the pastor, we should confess only those sins which we know and feel in our hearts. And so once again, he highlights even there in the small catechism that we have, again, these are my words, what I would call the two types of confession. Of course, we have the general confession, but we also have this great treasure of the gospel that when sins trouble us, we can go and hear forgiveness for those two in the private confession. All right, so then moving forward then, there's, again, a progression going on here. I'm going to pick up with paragraph 15 here, and we're going to get another two number going on here. So paragraph 15. So notice then that confession, as I have often said, consists of two parts. The first is my own work and action when I lament my sins and desire comfort and refreshment for my soul. The other part is a work that God does when he declares me free of my sin through his word placed in the mouth of a man. It is this splendid, noble thing that makes confession so lovely, so comforting. It used to be that we emphasized it only as our work. All that we were then concerned about was whether our act of confession was pure and perfect in every detail. We paid no attention to the second and most necessary part of confession, nor did we proclaim it. 
We acted just as if confession were nothing but a good work by which payment was to be made to God, so that if the confession was inadequate and not exactly correct in every detail, then the absolution would not be valid and the sin unforgiven. By this, the people were driven to the point where everyone had to despair of making so pure a confession, an obvious impossibility, and where no one could feel at ease in his conscience or have confidence in his absolution. So they not only rendered the precious confession useless to us, but also made it a bitter burden, citing Matthew 23, verse 4, causing noticeable spiritual harm and ruin. In our view of confession, therefore, we should sharply separate its two parts from each other. We should place slight value on our part in it, but we should hold in high and great esteem God's word in the absolution part of confession. We should not proceed as if we intended to perform and offer him a splendid work, but simply to accept and receive something from him. You dare not come saying how good or how bad you are. All right, thus far the exhortation again. So again, this highlights so often just language that we learn in the very simple way in the small catechism. And of course, that's the benefit of large catechism. And this has been traditionally included with at least the revised edition on that Luther is explaining this in greater detail so that we might make use of this great treasure because as we've already seen, it's not being used. And so he's talked about how we have two kinds of confession and then what I've called the two types of confession. And now he highlights what we have all learned so well there again in the small catechism, which is that there are two parts to confession. So how does Luther describe each of those parts here for us, Pastor Bars? Well, there are two parts, and this is the way we must confess. I speak my heartfelt confession. I admit my brokenness. And yet what Luther is emphasizing in this exhortation is that if the emphasis is on how I say and what I say, or I have to do my work or make my confession, he uses the phrase pure and perfect in every detail, then we distort what confession is. It is not just that trite phrase, confession is good for the soul. If I say what's bothering me, if I say what's hurting me, then somehow something is lifted from me. No, the emphasis is always on the absolution. It's not that I have to even worry about how adequate my words of confession are. Are they purely spoken? Have I named all the sins that are troubling me? No, my confidence is not in what I speak, but the voice of God through the one who speaks absolution to me. This is where the value is. This is what we hold highly and in great esteem, that God is at work to deliver forgiveness to his people, to you, to me. Yes, on a Sunday morning in corporate absolution, but yes, when an individual, when a Christian says, Pastor, hear my confession, and I can speak holy absolution to that individual. That's the emphasis. That's the treasure. That's the gift. Not because of my words, no, but because God is using us as a pastor or God is using another person to speak that word of forgiveness to me. Absolutely. Once again, I think this document just focuses us on the gospel, care of souls so much. And then Luther's going to continue to build upon that here as we continue on picking up with paragraph 19. If you are a Christian, I, in any case, know well enough that you are. If you are not, I know that even better. But what you must see too is that you lament your problem and that you let yourself be helped to acquire a cheerful heart and conscience. Moreover, no one may now pressure you with commandments. Rather, what we say is this. 
Whoever is a Christian or would like to be one is here faithfully advised to go and get the precious treasure. If you are no Christian and do not desire such comfort, we shall leave it to another to use force on you. By eliminating all need for the Pope's tyranny, command, and coercion, we cancel them with a single sweep. As I have said, we teach that whoever does not go to confession willingly and for the sake of obtaining the absolution, he may as well forget about it. Yes, and whoever goes around relying on the purity of his act of making confession, let him stay away. Nevertheless, we strongly urge you by all means to make confession of your need, not with the intention of doing a worthy work by confessing, but in order to hear what God has arranged for you to be told. What I am saying is that you are to concentrate on the word, on the absolution, to regard it as a great and precious and magnificently splendid treasure, and to accept it with all praise and thanksgiving to God. If this were explained in detail, and if the need that ought to move and lead us to make confession were pointed out, then one would need little urging or coercion, for everyone's own conscience would so drive and disturb him that he would be glad to do what a poor miserable beggar does when he hears that a rich gift of money or clothing is being handed out at a certain place. So as to not miss it, he would run there as fast as he can and would need no bailiff to beat and drive him on. Now suppose that in place of the invitation, one were to substitute a command to the effect that all beggars should run to that place, but would not say why, nor mention what they should look for and receive there. What else would the beggar do but make the trip with distaste, without thinking of going to get a gift, but simply of letting people see what a poor, miserable beggar he is? This would bring him little joy and comfort, but only greater resentment against the command that was issued. All right, thus far the exhortation. Uh, I just love this section of it. And I'm, I'm going to go ahead and let the cat out of the bag here. This document definitely changed my view of understanding, especially private confession and what a treasure it is. And this section is definitely key for me. I think it highlights it really well because once again, Luther returns here to stating that confession is not and should not be compulsory. He definitely wants to highlight that. Yet he does say that the Christian does have need of it. Of course, we need the gospel. And so what then is the need that should urge a person to accept the invitation of God and receive what is available to them in confession, and especially private confession, great treasure that it is, little used though it is in our church? Go ahead, Pastor Bars. This language of ourselves as beggars, that we are always beggars, and that it's an invitation. It is to say this poor and miserable beggar, when he hears that a rich gift of money or clothing, so as not to miss it, he would run there as fast as he can. He doesn't need anyone to tell him he has to go. He sees the gift, there's a treasure waiting him, and he would run there. We are beggars who receive this great gift. And then, as he says just a little bit before that, to concentrate on the word on the absolution, that the power is in the Word. We teach that. That's what sets us apart, I think, as Lutheran Christians, that the power is always in the Word. It is in the Word connected to simple water. It is in the Word connected to bread and wine. And this is what makes absolution, this magnificently splendid treasure to which we respond with all praise and thanksgiving. Ten years before Luther writes his catechism, he was called to and debated Johann Eck in the city of Leipzig. And I hope this doesn't take too much of a tangent. I'll try to make it brief. In this Leipzig debate, this seems to be a place where Luther is already maturing in his understanding of the gospel from 1517. And he makes this statement. He says that every priest should absolve the penitent of sin and guilt. And an even stronger statement, if the priest does not do so, he sins. 
And then he says, the word is absolution. Ten years later, when he writes the catechism or formulates the catechism and writes this exhortation, he is certainly saying there is a gift, and this is what God's people and his servants particularly, his pastors, are called to do, is to forgive sins. This splendid treasure is the gift. It's why uh, the church gathers, and it's why we invite God's people to receive and to be blessed by individual confession and absolution. Absolutely. I think that is something excellent to bring in there. Thank you for doing that, because I think it puts us, again, where the emphasis of this blessed treasure that is confession is on is the absolution. That's the main thing. It's the word of the gospel for you. And so then that, as you were just describing there as well, also informs what the pastors are to be doing, how the church should be ordered and structured. It's what we're coming for. And I think he gets at this, especially he's always got a jab back at the Pope and his tyrannical ways. And so he returns to that here and basically rebukes, look, you forgot what the church is all about. And so I'm going to pick up with paragraph 25 here. In just this way, the Pope's preachers kept silent in the past about the splendid gift and inexpressible treasure to be had through confession. All they did was drive people in crowds to confession with no further aim than to let them see what impure, dirty people they were. Who could go willingly to confession under such circumstances? We, however, do not say that people should look at you to see how filthy you are, using you as a mirror to preen themselves. Rather, we give this counsel. If you are poor and miserable, then go to confession and make use of its healing medicine. He who feels his misery and need will no doubt develop such a longing for it that he will run toward it with joy. But those who pay no attention to it and do not come of their own accord, we let them go their way. Let them be sure of this, however, that we do not regard them as Christians. So we teach what a splendid, precious, and comforting thing confession is. Furthermore, we strongly urge people not to despise a blessing that, in view of our great need, is so priceless. Now, if you are a Christian, then you do not need either my pressuring or the Pope's orders, but you will undoubtedly compel yourself to come to confession and will beg me for a share in it. However, if you want to despise it and proudly continue without confession, then we must draw the conclusion that you are no Christian and should not enjoy the sacrament either, for you despise what no Christian should despise. In that way, you make it so that you cannot have forgiveness of your sins. This is a sure sign that you also despise the gospel. All right, this far the exhortation, strong words there. Again, a lot stronger than we're maybe more comfortable with in our present context, but I think he's dead on target. I think it's a faithful understanding of what scripture would lead us in. And what Luther's doing here then is he gives a strong warning against despising the treasure contained in confession and absolution because you're despising essentially what it is to be a Christian. And so why, Pastor Bars, is there no excuse for a Christian to set private confession aside? I'm going to use Luther's other language. I'm not quoting him directly, but his sacramental language, that if our Lord says, I command you to baptize, Luther says that would be enough, but he attaches promise to it. So God's people bring their children to the font and are rejoicing when he bestows this gift. The same with the sacrament of the altar. It's command, but it is promise, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. To leave confession and absolution as only command, our nature says, I can do without it, or I'm not as bad, or I don't want anyone to hear how bad a poor, miserable sinner I am. But there is promise, and there is gift, and there is this wonderful blessing to hear my sins are forgiven. And what a joy, and what a privilege it is. 
at a doxology event several years ago in the Kansas City area. We, before our divine service, there was opportunity for individual confession and absolution. There were three pastors across the front. They were spread from each other. No one could hear what one would be saying to another, to a penitent. I was waiting and watching to go forward. And what an amazing experience to know what is being said and forgiveness is being spoken. I don't know the specific sin that was being confessed, and yet I know that that person was hearing clear and true and delightful, joyful, freeing gospel. Yes, individual confession and absolution often takes place when no one is around. It takes place in the sanctuary when the church is empty. It may take place in my study when no one else is here. Yes, of course, but what an amazing to watch that and to know that there is good news. I wish I could have filmed it and helped teach our people here in some way that this is what it looks like and this is why it is such a great treasure. Absolutely. And as you highlight there, I think it is being recovered in our Lutheran church again in our own day here. And we give thanks to God for that because it is such a treasure of the gospel, which definitely brings it to a close here with just a couple minutes. I want to read this concluding section and let you kind of wrap it up for us here, Pastor Barr. So this is picking up with paragraph 30 and going to the end of the exhortation. To sum it up, we want to have nothing to do with coercion. However, if someone does not listen to or follow our preaching and its warning, we will have nothing to do with him, citing 1 Corinthians 5.11. Nor may he have any share in the gospel. If you were a Christian, then you ought to be happy to run more than a hundred miles to confession and not let yourself be urged to come. You should rather come and compel us to give you the opportunity. For in this matter, the compulsion must be the other way around. We must act under orders. You must come into freedom. We pressure no one, but we let ourselves be pressured, just as we let people compel us to preach to administer the sacrament. When I urge you to go to confession, I am doing nothing else than urging you to be a Christian. If I have brought you to the point of being a Christian, I have thereby also brought you to confession. For those who really desire to be true Christians, to be rid of their sins, and to have a cheerful conscience already possess the true hunger and thirst. They reach for the bread, just as Psalm 42 verse 1 says of a hunted deer, burning in the heat with thirst. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. In other words, as a deer with anxious and trembling eagerness strains toward a fresh flowing stream, so I yearn anxiously and tremblingly for God's word, absolution, the sacrament, and so forth. See, that would be teaching right about confession. And people could be given such a desire and love for it that they would come and run after us for it, more than we would like. Let the papists plague and torment themselves and others who pass up the treasure and exclude themselves from it. Let us, however, lift our hands in praise and thanksgiving to God, citing 1 Timothy 2.8, for having graciously brought us to this our understanding of confession. All right, thus endeth the exhortation. Just about one minute here. In Luther's summary and conclusion here, he contrasts his stern warning for despising the precious gift by also presenting in a very winsome way an invitation to receive God's amazing gift of grace and confession and absolution. So go ahead then, Pastor Bars, and give us your summary of why Luther and why all pastors, especially as I said, are recovering, especially today, exhorting Christians to make use of this precious gift of confession. Because we live under the gospel and not under the law, because we know that there is a difference between talking about forgiveness and proclaiming and bestowing and delivering forgiveness, because it is a gift, because Luther and we want this blessing to be enjoyed, this treasure to be received, we want 
consciences to be set free. We want people to taste and see that the Lord is good by setting before them Christ and his finished work, the cross of our salvation, the cross of our redemption, the good news that we can send them on their way hearing, go, you are free. Absolutely. That is Pastor Mark Bars. Thank you for joining us for Concord Matters today and talking us through Luther's A Brief Exhortation to Confession, which although it's not officially a part of the Book of Concord, you've definitely heard here today why it is rightly included with the Book of Concord, as like the rest of the documents of the Book of Concord, the Exhortation to Confession is a scripturally faithful teaching which is centered on the gospel for the comfort of consciences. Thank you, Pastor Bars, for highlighting that so well for us today. And thank you, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church.